It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello, cyber listeners. It occurred to me this week that we could recount the year in stories that we've done. The real scoops and traffic hogs. But then again, this is the decade that changed InfoSec. This was the decade that made hackers real, our personal digital information sacred, and our political systems fixed into some social media hellscape. Since its founding in 2009, Motherboard has seen it all with you. So, our dear EIC, Jason Kebler, and I will take you through from the beginning, from Guy Fox masks, strings of weaponized code, to your brain being manipulated by a Facebook ad. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Jason, I have to tell you, it is a strange episode for both of us. Because it's here and I like it. It's the here end of the decade. It's the end of the decade, but you know what? You and I, both born in the same year, we also became reporters in this era, and we've been covering this for uh, too long. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I started my job, like my first journalism job, and I was like, wow, I don't know anything. And now I look back, I'm like, oh, I know about all this stuff. I like have... I've seen some shit now. I know. It's like you've gone through. I remember I had like an old old editor tell me when I got in and he, he smoked like a chimney. He's like, how old are you? And I was like, I'm 23. And I thought I was a real hot shot. Like I knew the world. And he's just like, you're going to go through the goddamn laundry by the end of this decade. <laughs> and like, he was absolutely right. And he you're was a, absolutely right. You're yeah. a grizzled, yeah, now I, old man. Yeah, no, I'm a smoker. <laughs> I uh, hate myself. And, uh, you know, uh, Supre- I love journalism. Supreme Court case. Uh, <laughs> Supreme yeah, Court yeah, case. Yeah, he really had, a, had it all. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's been a real good one. But also along the way, I mean, this, is, this has been the year of cyber, or the year. This has been the, the decade of cyber. In yeah, the, this is the cyber cipher to end all cyber ciphers in which uh, we're going to For the talk, decade, just for, for the, the decade. decade for yeah. the decade, yeah. I it's coming g- back in 2020. Yeah, the, sorry. I meant that uh, as a uh, metaphor. It's as a, a metaphor. It's a big, supersized cipher in which we're going to talk in broad strokes about the biggest things that happened this decade in cyber. And I think it's appropriate to do that because this has been a, a decade in which sort of the hackers came out of the dark and it was no longer this like, you know, even though Trump said that shit in, in 2016, you know, it's like a 100, 400 pound guy in a basement. I think we'd really gotten past that. Yeah, the hackers left the basement and we went into the basement <laughs> yeah. where we are recording this. So we're the bloggers yes. and podcasters in the basement. Exactly. But the hackers, I mean, they get TV shows, they get they get all the cool stuff. They make way more money than us. They do. They get whether trinkets. Whether they're criminal or legit. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. We just... We just feed upon their blood. Yes, in the uh, distance. Okay, so so one of the one of the first ones for me, and I, I think it really kind of as someone who hosted a show called Cyber War, Stuxnet, which is to say, the first real weaponized code that destroyed a physical target that we know of. It was a piece of U.S. Israeli malware that targeted the Natanz nuclear facility in Iran, and it you know essentially sped it up to destroy it. Sped up the centrifuges yes. that refined uh, uranium to the point where they did physical damage. It did physical damage to it and destroyed them. This was a good idea, all right? But I also admit this was a really big idea, too. And that big idea 
has implications now. Stuxnet is the first time where we've seen significant physical damage created by a cyber attack. I remember when I first heard about it, and it came to light in 2010, I remember thinking, this is, that happened? <laughs> There's like a few things about Stuxnet that, you know, here we are nine and a half years later, or what have you, since since it was discovered, that still haven't been surpassed and that still are like really important to how we think about hacking. It's like, first, this was highly sophisticated malware. Like for years we didn't, I mean, we knew it was the U.S., but like it was untraceable back to the U.S., Second, it infected air-gapped systems, so it was literally like the people who uh, who dropped it, put it on USB drives, and dropped it in the parking lot and waited for someone who worked in the nuclear facility to plug it into, uh, you know, a laptop in there. And then it sat there, like, undetected for a long time. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it, it, to, to, to give the level of sophistication... It literally, I remember when people were, were, were tracking it to the U.S., a lot of malware analysts said that one of the reasons is that you can tell it was reviewed by lawyers because it, it literally targeted certain proprietary products that would be protected from U.S. litigation, which is wild because, you know, we knew it was, you know, the height of the, the, the war on terror and you had lawyers in the room for drone strikes, for, for kill capture, whatever it, it may be. And you look at it and Stuxnet was, you know, the first example of using something cyber-related to replace something kinetic. Do you think it was an act of war? I, I would not call, call it an act of war, like, uh, given my own background, mm -hmm. Steve. I mean, I've got this whole universe of things between peace and war that are called covert actions. Mm -hmm. I don't think whoever did this considered it to be an act of war. The Iranians have not quite responded to it as if it were an act of war. It's in that space between the two. Since Stuxnet, everyone has been like, wow, you know, you can do kinetic warfare with cyber, with like a virus, basically. And you can, and we did in that instance, but, and we, there have been other examples of this happening, but not on the scale of Stuxnet, not like to the level where it was, uh, you know, this was nation state warfare. I mean, obviously in the last couple of years, it seems like the Russians have been targeting like Ukrainian power plants and stuff like this, but it's like, this was real, like, top-level geopolitical stuff. It's like, even now, we're still talking about, like, the Iran deal to denuclearize Iran. And it's like, this was... The, 2010. The, this was 2010, and but this is what the U.S. was doing to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And yeah. it's like, it's just a really still fascinating to this day. Still, like, I think I think I can say this. Like, definitely the most famous piece of malware Ever. Ever. I mean... At least, among, at least among the people who know. The real yeah. ones who know. <laughs> I mean, there's other, like, really important ones, like Heartbleed, which I don't think we'll talk about, but also this decade, also super important. Um, you know, there's also some historic ones that I cannot think of at this moment, and ones that affected consumers. Slower. But as far as... Yeah. <laughs> but as far as, like, things that had a real geopolitical impact, like, this is really crazy. It's really crazy. And it was also, you know, you, you mentioned the Ukrainian power plants and, and it's a great reference. And the, the difference between Stuxnet and those series of attacks was those series of attacks weren't, it wasn't like hyper sophisticated malware that was designed to go after those, those plants. It was a series of different types of attacks that they used that were 
available that were easily deployed against those plants and, you know, really worked. And it was great. And all, all, all the credit to whoever the attackers were because it worked, Russia. Uh, <laughs> but Stuxnet was just, it was, you know, it was literally, it was a, a replacement for an F-18, you know, and that's a really interesting kind of mind-blowing mind-blowing example of, of how we kind of kicked off this decade. Yeah, and if you want to know more about Stuxnet, you should definitely read Kim Zetter's book. She wrote an incredible book about Stuxnet. And Absolutely. And it's like frequent motherboard contributor. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Been on twice, I believe, which yep. is uh, tied for most. By most a, appearances. Yeah, by a non-motherboard staff guest. So yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll have her back soon. But uh, yeah, Stuxnet. It's a great one. Yeah. So then moving on to something I think, I mean, it started before 2010, but it certainly carried on. And I think its influence has certainly come to real effect in this decade. And I, and that's to say this group is no longer what it was at all, but it still lingers. I mean, if you just look at something like Mr. Robot, it's a cultural specter as much as it's a, it was an actual, you know, group anonymous. Yeah, I mean, anonymous. What what more can you say? It's like right, like the guy Fox Mask, the it, burn it down hacker. This is so highly influential. And again, if we're shouting out friends of motherboard, Gabriella Coleman wrote an incredible book about anonymous, uh, which is I don't know. Like you can call them a hacking troop. You can call them a bunch of four chan trolls. You can call them the predecessors to like the Pepe meme people. Um, you can it's, call them so many things. Yeah, and it's like they, I mean, 4chan existed before Anonymous, and Anonymous grew up out of 4chan, but I would say for as much influence as 4chan has had over the decade, like Anonymous and its sort of offshoots and lingering cultural relevancy is probably the most important. That and also like just meme culture, but I mean, it, at this point, you can't even like separate meme culture from Anonymous. You can't. I mean, even, I mean, you're just like all for the lols, right? Like that that whole concept of, of even trolling was really perfected by Anonymous. Right. And so just just uh, some notable things that sort of grew out of Anonymous. I just remember Project Chanology. That's like the one that really stuck in my head. I think it was maybe the first one that I could think of. I think it's 2008. It's, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I guess that was pre <laughs> this decade, but they're... I mean, then it's, they did shit this year too. But, and but then so, it's like it's Occupy Wall Street. It's it's right. you know Arab Spring. There's right. so many so many. And any of you look at like an offshoot like Lulsec. Like Lulsec was if you want you know badass hacktivist, almost film level fictional. Right, and then you get into <laughs> like people. Phineas Fisher, who we've talked about yeah. in this show, which like we have no evidence that Phineas Fisher was ever a member of Anonymous, but it's the same, it's like this idea of hacktivism that has grew, grew out of Anonymous. So I just mentioned Project Technology just very briefly. That's when Anonymous went to war with the Church of Scientology. Type move. And just like did some in-person trolling, did some, uh, I think they faxed like thousands upon thousands of all black pages to their like fax machines and printers. But it was like it's that like, video of, of Tom Cruise they got. Yeah, there was that. Sure there was also nuts. just like, there's the anonymous voice as well, yeah. which is just like even the video that Anonymous used to put out, right? Like of the 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 sort of amorphous person with the mask on, just like saying, yeah, things. it's like we are legion. We are legion. Us. It's, like, it's it's I mean, it's scary as fuck. Also, scary like as it fuck. Was. And, and, and and just like I gotta hand it to them, like fucking amazing advertising. <laughs> we are Anonymous. We are legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. 
they really were that cool. You know, I mean, and they also, uh, in a lot of ways sort of perfected the, uh, like co-opting the media mm-hmm. in a way that uh, like Donald Trump's meme army, if you want to call them that, uh, which a lot of people do, did in like the lead up to the 2016 election where it's like they did things specifically to get media coverage. And even if it was only like one person doing like one weird troll or something, like they were able to get a ton of press coverage, which made them seem bigger than they actually were, which then like feeds upon itself over time and suddenly you have like this relatively small movement that has like national and international implications. And the other thing I think that really makes them right now even more significant is they really kind of were the harbinger of that 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 feeling in, in society where the system is rigged, the governments are corrupt, and few can kind of try to try to affect the masses to try to take on corporations, take on governments. In a way that I think now is coming back into vogue, you know, we, we're all this very is the frustrated. decade we realized capitalism is bad. Yeah, exactly. And, a lot of and that I grew think out of, a lot uh, of that. I think I think anonymous was really, really important in in sort of establishing that, you know. And it's it's. I also think they influenced sort of the the rise of ISIS and the, and the way that ISIS used online online recruitment and online meme culture. It just it's it was such an influential in so many ways group. You really, it will be a historical moment. Yeah, yeah. And then, I think you know, in the midst of all that, we have you know the the. To the be Strat clear, right, right now we're doing like um, we're doing chronological order. I think at the end we should talk about like which which of these stuck in our head as like the most important cyber story, right? Maybe, maybe I don't know. I mean, these are the these they're, are we're they're doing all we're doing very important. We're doing to me, we're doing the chronology of extremely important ones, right? Right, and but I this think, isn't like it's not like uh, you know Stuxnet's uh, number one is number one, no, like, no, 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 no. number two. We're just no, 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 we're, no. Going we're just we're going decade. we're going through the decade. Memory right? road, memory road is what it is, Jason. Yes. It's I'm starting to get all sad it's thinking about what I was like when I was hearing about this. It's random access memories, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so out of out of anonymous, also you know you get you get stuff like uh, uh, WikiLeaks, right? Right. WikiLeaks, Jeremy, yeah, Jeremy Han- Hammond. Uh, you get people like uh, Barrett Brown. Barrett Brown. And then in the midst of all that, someone comes and steals all of the thunder in terms of leaking information. And I think, to me, if we are going to call it out, I think this is the most important story in cyber in the entire decade. Is the moment in 2013. When June 2013, when Edward Snowden leaked just the ridiculous mass of NSA internal information that sort of finally brought to the world and to the American people more specifically, just the level of the big brother state that they were living in. Why should people care about surveillance? Because even if you're not doing anything wrong, you're being watched and recorded. And the, the storage capability of these systems increases every year consistently by orders of magnitude uh, to where it's getting to the point you don't have to have done anything wrong. You simply have to eventually fall under suspicion from somebody, even by a wrong call. And then they can use the system to go back in time and scrutinize every decision you've ever made every friend you've ever discussed something with and attack you on that basis to sort of derive suspicion from an innocent life and paint anyone in the context of a wrongdoer. And I don't think if this hadn't happened, if you hadn't done that, all these questions around 
privacy, hacking, et cetera, never would have happened. I'd love to, I mean, you can't put this like cat back in the bag. No, you can't. It's it's like hard to see how things would go differently, but it's like we allowed Facebook and Google and Amazon and all these companies to build these gigantic, uh, you know, data-based uh businesses and apparatuses and like use up all our personal information and nothing that Edward Snowden like revealed had anything to do with that. But I feel like even though we sort of allowed Facebook and Google to, to do this, um, or rather they sort of ignored regulation or moved too fast for regulators to really do anything and are now too popular. It's like, we would have just been living in total bliss. I feel like, if, like no one would have like fought back against them at all. I just, I just feel like very few people had any idea of like online privacy, surveillance, the, these sorts of issues. Like, no there one. Were I think very few people talking about it before Edward Snowden. I think very few people. I think people in the know kind of had a had a concept that oh, I'm sure it's possible, but the scale of it was just you know what I mean. It was so vast. And the power that the U.S. government had almost over the world. Yeah, I mean, it's like, so the NSA just doing mass surveillance on American citizens. And if you're not an American citizen, like, God help you. Like, yeah. all all, uh, all bets are off. All our allies, all our uh, enemies, et cetera, et cetera. Just like, this really introduced and made, if not a household term, at least a term that anyone who cared at all like learned about the FISA court and like the FISC and like all these other uh, like dragnets and prism and all these uh, buzzwords that we only learned about because of Edward Snowden, like these mass surveillance campaigns. And the fact that like the government had a backdoor to like Google and Microsoft and Facebook and Yahoo, which was much more important back in the day than it yeah. is now, is just like, it was horrifying. Like, I, it's one of those things where I remember exactly where I was yeah, when that story same here. broke. Same here, same here. And it was like, I remember thinking, this this needs more. We need everyone, if you're a journalist, you need to look into this and yeah, understand I, this world. And I also think it showed just how influential cyber was on geopolitics. It was not just this sort of ridiculous thing in science fiction that kind of affected some things, you know, like some tool in James Bond's, like little little rolodex it's like no no this is this is the game like this is how it works yeah and i think that when these stories broke when glenn greenwald and laura poitras broke these stories and when edward stone came forward they did it in such a smart way in that it was like a trickle over time and Mm -hmm. then like citizen four came out which is like well probably the best documentary of the decade at least my favorite yeah it was so good just because it was like you're a front your front seat to the, one of the craziest the historical events happened, ever. Yeah, the fact that it happened in real time, that they yeah. just like turn the camera on the second they show up. It's yeah. just like, it's incredible. It's an incredible window into a really historic moment and period. But it's like, people were saying, oh yeah, this is a big deal right now, but like people are going to forget. And it's like, no, Edward Snowden is still around. Like he was on cyber. Yep. That's how, you know, the show. that's how you know someone is still relevant. <laughs> yeah. But it's like he's still doing his thing. And like, of course, it's not as ever present as it was back in 2013. But it's like people didn't forget. It's like there have been privacy, like massive privacy stories every single year since then. And I don't know that any of them would have risen to the level or like had the impact that they had if Snowden didn't like 
reveal this stuff. I mean, strangely, I've said this to Lorenzo before, but like, would I have a job in this? Yeah, like, like, it's, like, <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, of course it died down, but it always came back. And I, yeah. I just don't know that any, really any story has had the staying power that this has uh, yeah, over and, this decade. And you know, I think- Any the, tech story, at least. Any tech story. And I think, well, I mean, it also just, it became the, a front page tech story that trumped all other stories. But the other thing I think, even just beyond government surveillance, the thing that I remember thinking when people would ask me about this, and especially when we we're doing the show, is was just how much that disclosure just kind of made people realize that hacking was real. <laughs> yeah, the hacking was real, and also uh, that, like, it sort of, uh, like you said, it upended what we thought about geopolitics. It's like we're hacking our allies and like our allies are hacking us and we're sharing information with all of them. And it's like, I remember I wrote a story. It was, I started at Motherboard soon after this story broke. When it first broke, I was at US News and World Report and I wrote maybe like one or two stories, but then I was already freelancing under the table for Motherboard, mm -hmm. which uh, I don't know, I just didn't tell my bosses. And then I did I the same thing, same thing yeah. when I worked for AP, same yeah. thing. <laughs> uh, and I, I pitched a story and I wrote it and the headline was, everyone's hacking everyone and no one, or everyone's spying on everyone. There's nothing we can do about it or something. And it's, I don't know. It's like a headline I wrote literally like in my bedroom at home. Cause I was there over still, still true or something. Yeah. Still true. Yeah. And, but it's still true. And it's like, it's something I just dashed together, but it's still true. It's like, everyone is spying on everyone. Everyone is ha like, it's just very, there's yeah. a lot going on. There's lot a lot going, going on out there. A lot going on out there. A lot going on out there. And you know, I mean, soon after that, you had the—I just remember the Sony hack. I remember that was—that was massive in terms of people were like, "Whoa, like Hollywood gets hacked too." And you're like, "Yeah, it, it does by North Korea." Yeah, Sony hack is—I uh, don't think it's on your list. No, but it's but just it's, funny. It's definitely one of the biggest stories of the year, also, or the decade as well. Like in tech, yeah. The fact that and the way that that was covered and all that sort of thing. Like the we fact don't need that to get Seth, deep into it, but yeah, a Seth Rogen stoner comedy pissed off the hermit kingdom <laughs> yeah and then uh, like really so hilarious. much that also showed um let's talk about it real quick because yeah. a that was like a really creepy hack like that was a skeleton involved uh when it, they took over the entire networks of sony and then all the data got dumped and that that was like one of the i would say that was probably one of the first big data leaks where journalists had conversations about like what should we cover in here and what shouldn't we like from an ethical standpoint there was a moment where i thought maybe what if all my personal emails came out and that would have been you know it would have i would have had some explaining to do <laughs> just with you know things that i've said to, you know you talk shit about a million people in your day-to-day -day life in your emailing especially if like the last like 20 years of my emails had come out because there was obvious like news value in this there was right. like you know here's sony is like paying men more than women like things of this nature like i don't know it was worse this than person's a dick this person is not and that's what i think honestly looking back in like 10 years people will like the sony hacks most relevance lies there is that it was like the first major cyber attack that actually kind of put the media to the test of like how do we deal with this but then there's also things like that uh, one of the Sony executives like like uh, 
pubic waxing products, like purchases on Amazon, like all the super uh, personal stuff from people who were not really public figures was being made public. Someone just robbed your house and gave every one of your personal photos, diaries, your letters, your correspondences, and basically just left it on the street corner just by journalists and bloggers who are going through shit. And it's like, oh, look at what this Sony executive bought on Amazon. And it's like, these people didn't really do anything to deserve <laughs> this level of scrutiny. You know? No, no. It's like, I mean, like you suck, but yeah, it's, it's, it kind of shows that, you know, everyone could be a victim in this, in this kind of environment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So moving on from that, skipping forward a couple years, to what I think is what a lot of people would say is the story, maybe even over Snowden, but I, I would disagree, but still insane. The hack of the DNC. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, we're still living in we're that, still living that, in that hell. hellscape. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, we've talked about this, actually not that much on this show, but like, collectively us as a publication and as a nation yes we've talked about it as ad nauseum like forever and we'll continue to talk about it forever but yeah i think uh we talk about it because it's super important it's like russia hacked <laughs> the the democratic national convention and it's like potentially and probably altered the history of the world yeah yeah it gave us Possible. I mean, I wouldn't give it completely to the Russians on this. I will tell you this. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. But definitely had a major effect, you know, like I think that was that's the whole point of it. Why it's so insane is that it was the first time that hackers to the American public conscience and the world's influence something so, so important. So core to who so we are core as a to nation. To, <laughs> like, it's just, it's insane. And also it was, it was the time where the first time in what, four years or three years where like ISIS stopped being the American boogeyman and suddenly it was Russian hackers. Yeah. I think also, and Correct me if I'm wrong or, like, if you're a listener, yell at me on Twitter or something if, if Ben doesn't correct me here. But, like, I can't really think of an earlier, like, political hack. Like, no. one, one that was, like, literally on a— Not of that scale. Not of that scale, but also, um, like, of a political party. Not Of course, like, a lot of hacks are politically motivated and had like have yeah. political, like, intentions, etc. But, like, a foreign adversary, like, hacking— an American political party. Like, like nothing nothing came before that that I can think of. No, I mean, Russia did this to other nations, but yeah. the difference is, is it's not the most powerful nation in the world and it's arch nemesis for 70 years. <laughs> you know, and that's the significance is you have Russia, 
using this, even at the time, kind of fancy, interesting thing to the public to then destroy America at its core. You know, like it was it was it was really, truly. I remember I, I covered Putin's press conference or sorry, Putin. Um, his press conference in Moscow in 2016. He does this every year. It's it like a four-hour yeah. press conference where he literally invites 2,000 journalists. And it's really strange. You were there? I was person? there. I covered it. Yeah, I covered okay. for Vice News. Yeah. So they're in person. And like, you know, he, he walked on the stage. First of all, he's very short. Very tiny guy. Um, very, very tiny guy. Like, like comically short. And he, he walks on stage and he sat there and he looked like a conquering hero. Like he knew what he did. <laughs> And he would he he was able to deflect the questions, but I remember thinking like I'm sitting in Moscow. It's 2016. This is like how many years past the Cold War, and basically Russia just like completely fucked us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not. And Trump is now the president, and I'm I'm flying back to New York, and what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not What's that much on? to like <laughs> say. Like, I and it's also that hack was so important, but also still so poorly understood by the masses, like yes. both how important it was as well as like how it was part of a sort of broader, like psyops information warfare campaign. Like I think a lot of people take the hack of the DNC and the hack of John Podesta and think they're like one in the same, mm-hmm. but, and they're obviously like related, but they're not the exact same hack. Like John Podesta was hacked separately from the DNC hack. And mm-hmm. then you have like, a lot of the information and reporting that came out like during that election cycle was just so bad and so confusing where it's like, oh yeah, the DNC had it out for Bernie Sanders and also the, you know, WikiLeaks is involved and also like all this other shit. And it's like, even now thinking about it, like we covered this so much. Yeah. And frankly, like when, when I was editing those pieces, every single detail was so important. Like we broke the story of uh, like, Guccifer. Guccifer 2.0, who Lorenzo talked to, you know, this guy who posted some of the DNC documents on his uh, blog spot, I believe it was. And, uh, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, I'm like a Romanian hacker, like lone Romanian hacker. And like, obviously, like wasn't. he was not. Yeah, he was like FSB. But I just remember how high stakes all of that editing felt. And of course it was because you can't like fuck something like that up. Um so we're checking like every fact, like we're going like, what is our sourcing on this? Like, how are we sure? Like X, Y, Z. And now four years later, I feel like half of that shit has fallen out of my brain. It's like, if you asked me to tell you about the DNC hack and exactly what went down and how it played out and like who the players were and how the information was shared with everyone and like hazy yeah like asked me to differentiate it from the john podesta hack and like some of the WikiLeaks stuff and some of the like russian trolling and cambridge analytica which i know we're going to talk about soon spoiler alert it's like it's really like this is the time where everything got really complicated or if it feels like it got to me like this is when it's like hacking trolling social media like, but also secrets, right? Like, what are secrets now? Because if something is a secret, it's it's now in today's day and age, it tends to come out. Right? Yeah, like, it tends to come out. But it's like how all of those different things like interact and like form yeah. what we know as like reality 
It's like it's so fucking confusing. It's, it's so confusing. It's the nature. It's like around this time is like when the nature of truth changed. Yeah, and it's like you asked me to t- to talk about Stuxnet, like that happened ten years ago, and I can name like most of the details. But this was only four years ago. I covered it much more closely than I covered Stuxnet, and I can't recall everything about it because it's so complicated. There's so much going on, and oh. there's so many different like wormholes you could go down absolutely absolutely i mean i i i did two deep dive episodes on it went to russia met weird hackers underground like did the whole like met russian generals it was thorough and with the the amazing producer i worked with on cyber war and i'm i feel the exact same way as you i'm just like wait what the fuck happened like and then i saw the like the um the Mueller report and i read it and i was just like jesus this is this is almost confused me even more than than it was before. And I think one of the reasons for that is because this hack was so important, it touched everything else. Like it yeah. touched everything we cover at Motherboard. It touches everything we believe about ourselves as a society. It completely changed politics. And it's like, unless you're able to explain how the world works, like you're not really able to. And, and honestly, I think like we're going to look back on this when we're old and gray and it's going to be a benchmark in the decline of the American empire. It's going to be the real, the the pinpoint historians will look at being the moment because you look at it now from 2016 to now and the, the control that America has on, on, on the globe, it's diminished, right? Whether it's... It's either that or uh, Rick and Morty's Szechuan sauce at McDonald's. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, whether... whether I mean, America's clearly still an extremely powerful country There's and the most powerful country, but it's not as powerful was, as it was since 2016. And that, that whole that whole fiasco... It also, like, pierced the veil or the, pierced the, like idea of American exceptionalism in many ways. And I, I think for a lot of people that probably was already mm-hmm. not the case anymore, but it's like the mainstream. It's view. the fact that it's like, oh yeah, like Russia really fucked us up. And like, we don't have the protections. Like we don't have the democratic protections, like our constitution, our like mechanism of government is like not designed to withstand this sort of yes, like subversion. Exactly. <laughs> It's it's totally absurd. And, you know, I think from there as well, the one thing we started seeing is how how much this space started getting weaponized, right? Yeah. By private companies. So it takes us to something like, before we get to the Cambridge Analytica, the NSOs and hacking teams of the world. WhatsApp is accusing an Israeli-based spyware company called NSO of selling technology to hack into the phones of 1,400 WhatsApp users. Yeah, and this is something that we've talked about a lot on this show as well, and it's something that Lorenzo or Joseph would probably be better placed to talk about, but I just think that uh, as we have started to rely so much more on our phones and, and what have you, it's like these companies that work with authoritarian governments that target nonprofits and, you know, uh, journalists and NGOs and and stuff like this, activists uh, with malware, they just hack them and uh, share that data with these governments and make a lot of money doing so. I just think it's, it's a really shady industry that is obviously super important. It's something that everyone who has listened to this podcast or who cares about hacking certainly knows a lot about, but it's still something that 
has really flown under the radar for probably the general public. Well, yeah, because I mean, really, when you boil it down, it's everything we're talking about, right? It's all of these powerful nation states and their agencies and how powerful they got and the operators that they employed and how skilled they became. And they're churning these types of operators out year in, year out. And they leave and they go and they get hired by these companies that then sell these high-end expertise to states like Saudi Arabia, who then hack yeah, dissident journalists. I think I think the reason I wanted to talk about this is because it's like the zero-day trade has become such a huge part of cybersecurity over the last four or five years. Yeah. Uh, longer than that, but I think like really, really important as Apple and Android have enabled default encryption as like zero days for iOS and uh, and Android and Chrome sort of go through the roof in terms of their rarity and their price. It's like you basically have individual hackers. You have these like gray, uh, like I guess NSO group and hacking team, I would call it like gray-ish market. They're not, they, they paint themselves as these like upstanding companies. But once say one of them gets hacked, like hacking team did, you learn that they're just like sketchy as hell. And then you have these other companies like Azimuth, which uh, we wrote about, I think, last year at this point, which is an Australian company that only sells to Five Eyes that looks at themselves as like stand-up individuals who only works with uh, quote-unquote good governments. And uh, it's just like all of it is very shady and weird. And it's like they're all playing in the same marketplace. They're all like looking for the same vulnerabilities and they're all just like selling this stuff and no one really knows a lot about it because it's very poorly regulated. Dare I say it, this might be a big kernel of a story in the future. Yeah. In the next, in the early part of this next decade. This one's very, like very much ongoing. Whereas like Stuxnet, cool. You see the legacy of it. Like, I think that this is something that is it's it was important and is important, you know, these last couple of years. But yes, definitely going to continue to be to be very important in yeah. this space, which takes us to the finale. Unless I think of other things while unless we're talking think, about, it. about it. But yeah, about it. Cambridge Analytica. Breaking news from the New York Times tonight. It is reporting that both the Justice Department and the FBI are investigating the now defunct political data firm Cambridge Analytica. Now, you remember the company worked both for the President, uh, President Trump's election campaign as well as other Republican candidates in 2016. It's come under fire for allegedly misusing the Facebook data of millions of users. Another motherboard scoop. Big time. Yeah. Uh, so what can I say about Cambridge Analytica, the British... Uh, I forget the term psychographics company. I believe they're psychographics, calling it psychographics. Yeah. yeah, and it's like insane word, by the way. Yeah, I think maybe not invented by Cambridge Analytica, but definitely a new word, <laughs> newish, new. Yeah. At least if it's not a new word, it's new in its relevance yeah. to society. I certainly never heard about it until then. Yeah, and so Cambridge Analytica obviously is this company that. Uh, harvested a shitload of Facebook data. Facebook did very, very, very little to stop it from doing so, and then sold that data to political campaigns and advertisers, et cetera, and allowed people to be extremely micro-targeted on Facebook. Yes, and it also kind of single-handedly, I mean, it's been it's been credited as such for deeply, deeply influencing first Brexit and the turn for people who voted yes. And then what? Only a few months later, the American election, presidential election that brought us, you know, 
in tandem with the DNC hack and other things. And also, you know, you, you can't take credit away from the Trump campaign had ran a very interesting campaign. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, it, it kind of it, it, it dovetails into all this. I think it was what's really, really crazy to me is that if you use all the things we've been talking about and then you put in this other kind of it's like just grim like a reaper chaos, chaos multiplier yeah it's like yeah. this grim reaper in the background it's like y'all are into this thing but you don't know what yeah. you're actually doing so <laughs> i think i know we're talking about it on our uh, most important stories of the decade here and i think that it is but i do think i think that cambridge analytica itself is a little bit of a scapegoat for like the broader problem, which is micro-targeting and like algorithmic feeds on social media and like these bubbles that people put themselves into, like these information bubbles. And like Cambridge Analytica weaponized that in a way that was horrifying and really bad. But I think the fact that these like exist and the fact that Facebook has become one of the richest companies on earth by sheer value of of selling selling people's data data is like, it's not... It's not undersold because we talk about it all the time, but it's just like, that's the bigger problem. That's like Cambridge Analytica is is the uh, symptom of this like deep, deep, horrible disaster we've gotten ourselves into where we don't know what the truth is anymore. And like, I'm not seeing the same stuff that you're seeing. And like, even if I want to, even if we have all the same friends and I follow all the same people, we're not going to see the same things in our feed and then it's a lot harder to reach common ground. I mean that's the thing is it's it's a terrifying story because it also it really is feeding what we're into today. Like if you look at impeachment, for example, look at impeachment and how I think it's pretty clear that there's some really bad things that happened on that Ukraine call. A just-released transcript of a phone call shows President Trump asking Ukrainian President Zelensky to investigate his political rival, former Vice President Joe Biden. And in this call, the president repeatedly stresses how much the U.S. does for Ukraine. And then he says, quote, I would like you to do us a favor. The total objective look at that is it's not good. But you have neither side can really get to to ground truth. I right. Think- and it's like it's 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 a lot of that has to do with what we're into today. And it, it's because of this kind of micro targeting that that Cambridge Analytica really weaponized so well. I think the reason why it's so important, maybe I already said this, but I, I think I can say it a little bit better, which is it prevents us from being able to explain our world in any real way, because fundamentally, like Facebook and Google and Twitter, to a lesser extent, but still an extent have these algorithmic feeds that even it can't explain, like even its engineers cannot explain exactly how they work. Um, and you have just like billions upon billions of people being fed all of their information by an algorithm. And when you say, oh, like, why did I see that? Or like, why is this happening? Like, you can't deconstruct it. You really can't because the algorithms know more about ourselves than we know about ourselves because of... <laughs> Because so of all the, ter- yeah, so like, terrifying. All of because of all of the tiny like minute interactions that we have, like every single little interaction we've ever had on these social media platforms is being fed into the algorithm and then is spitting out what we see as reality. So it's like 
oh, I stared at this post like slightly longer than I stared at another post. Like that's a data point. Like I clicked like on this and then I clicked unlike. I typed this like into my status. I shared like X number of statuses per week. Like all of that data is taken and is then like used against you. <laughs> I mean, I would say against you, but it's it's definitely used like the most benign thing that Facebook would even like admit is like it's used to inform what you see. And it's used because all of these companies want to uh, like highlight or they want to optimize for time spent on site and like interactions with content, like engagement. And so like you do that and it's just like, what has it done to our brains? What has it done to our society? What has it done to ourselves? And it's like, you if you look at what Stuxnet did, I keep going back to that because it's the first one. It's like, Stuxnet fucked up Iran's, uh, you know, nuclear refinement plant. And there were a couple unintended consequences. Like, I think Stuxnet ended up on the International Space Station somehow. Like, it spread weirdly, but it was still, like, so narrowly targeted to do this, like, one very specific thing. And then you look at, like, the Facebook algorithm... And it's like, what what is it designed to do? And what has it done? Like, we have no idea. Like, you can say, here's what Stuxnet did and here's the impact it had. When you say, like, here's what Facebook did or here's what Cambridge Analytica did and here's the impact it had. It's like, you have no idea. We have no idea what the impact is. There's no way of even studying it. It's just, it's too much data. It's too, the system is too complex. It's too soon. It's too soon. I mean, maybe in five years, it'll be like, we're all dead and Mark Zuckerberg is like, the only cyborg left alive or something. And then it's like, oh, the impact was society ended and Mark Zuckerberg was the only one rich enough to become a cyborg. I mean, (laughs) his future is clearly like floating around with his head in an orb, like his eyes shooting laser beams into people's... He looks like an orb already. You know what I mean? Like he's definitely going to murder people with his uh, laser eyes at some point. Yeah. So I feel like... uh, Yeah, that's... I feel talking about this has made me very tired. This decade has made me very tired. <laughs> yeah, this, this decade, you know, it came in, it actually came in kind of like a soft boy, you know, not too crazy. And it, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm exhausted. I think 2019 was, for many reasons, I think I really, I'm not gonna, I hope it, the door doesn't hit it on the ass on the fucking way out, but uh I think happy that's... Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, so we'll be back, uh, you know, first thing next year and we'll we'll enter the next decade and maybe the next uh, Stuxnet, maybe in 10 years we'll be talking about something that happens three weeks from now. So Yeah, 2020 we'll be will be interesting. And um, everyone, enjoy your holidays. Ready for a new election? Ready for a new election. Oh, God. Uh, we'll see you next year, everyone. Bye-bye. Goodbye. This final episode of The Decade was edited and recorded by Andrew Bursick, produced and hosted by me, Ben Maku. You will be hearing from us in 2020. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,